Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Morning. I'll give you a quick update on Brenda, too. She's... uh, seemed like three weeks in a row. She would go in on uh, she had surgery on a Monday, and then Friday she'd go in for a follow-up, and they'd schedule her for another surgery where they had to keep going and opening up and cleaning out that wound. And Friday she had her follow-up, and no surgery scheduled. She said the doc said it looked great. They just want to continue to monitor it. So just keep, Bren, uh, keep Brenda lifted up and keep uh, speak complete recovery over her. Of course, continue to speak over Larry Millis, uh, my dad, Pastor Larry to many of you. I had somebody ask me the other day, uh, why, won't, why don't you think God just, why won't God just heal him? And, uh, you know, meaning, you know, why, why is this taking so long? If God's going to heal him, why isn't it done yet? Why, why doesn't, uh... and so, so I, I started by explaining, you know, the, the work's already done. You know, when it's, it's like when you got saved. Jesus didn't go to the cross for you at that moment. What you did when you got saved, did God save you at that moment? Jesus died for you 2,000 years ago. The price was paid 2,000 years ago, and it's the same with healing. And it's by faith that we appropriate these things and that finished work in our lives. Now, I still can't answer why it takes so long sometimes. I can't answer why we don't see it in some cases. I just know I've got to base my belief, my prayers, my confession on the revealed word of God, not on the circumstances that surround me. But the next thing out of this person's mouth was, well, you'd think God would just go ahead and heal him after all he's done for God. And I said, that is absolutely the wrong way to look at this thing. If we start our prayers, even in our mind, thinking, I have this coming, God. Look at what I've done for you. We are, that is not faith. Now, we are going to look at some things in Colossians today about how we are supposed to be, how we are supposed to honor God with our mouth, with our lives, with our actions. But make no mistake, we don't earn a thing from God. Larry Millis doesn't deserve healing any more than the most wicked person in this room. Just like there's not a person in this world that deserves salvation any more than anybody else. Why can we expect to be healed? Because he's provided it for us. I shared a message a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday, I wish you'd listen to if you weren't here, where I was praying, just speaking uh, healing and health over myself, and I said something I don't normally say, which is, uh, I received my healing because, God, you need me healthy to do the work you've called me to do. And I just felt, I've never heard an audible voice from God, but right at that moment in my spirit, I heard God say, no, I don't. I don't need you healthy to do the work I've called you to do. I've got people doing my work from wheelchairs, from hospital beds, from all sorts of things. Uh, he says, you are healed. Healing is yours because you're my son and I love you. Praise God. That's, that's, that's liberating, Right? Anyway, we'll, uh, we might come back around to that. I just wanted to encourage you to continue to speak healing over yourself and speak healing over others who are in a healing covenant with God the Father, right? Praise the Lord. We are studying Colossians. 
Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, a church he had never visited. This is a quick review here. He had never visited Colossae. He, had never, he hadn't been to Laodicea. He hadn't been to a number of these places. But they were, all of these churches, outgrowths of Paul's missionary journeys. Somebody would get saved in one city, in this case Epaphras, uh, who was uh, uh, converted under Paul's ministry, I think, in Ephesus, and then went back to Colossae, started this church, and then is uh, communicating with Paul. And Paul is writing this letter to correct some things, to encourage some things, uh, and to warn them against embracing certain Gnostic concepts, which we've talked about the last couple of weeks, that had begun to creep into their assembly. And these, uh, these ideas, uh, you remember, they reduced Jesus, uh, in their mind, to a semi-divine being, a mystic, a guru, whatever you want to call it, who came to save mankind by enlightening them with higher knowledge. This is what Jesus came to do, share certain ideas, concepts, uh, and knowledge that would ultimately free them to be themselves a higher level of spiritual being. Uh, and, and, uh, and it wasn't monolithic. There were different strands of Gnosticism, different, strands, uh, different streams of the same error. But what Paul has already addressed, that we've, re- that we've read in the last two weeks, uh, includes confusion over who Jesus is. You know, just like like we just talked about, he wasn't a semi-divine being. He didn't just appear on the scene to share knowledge. He came physically. God the Son inhabited a physical, fully human body. But he really is God the Son, the creator and sustainer of the universe. In him dwelt all the fullness of God. He is the firstborn over all creation and the firstborn from among the dead. He has made it clear, Paul has in this, in this letter, perhaps more clearly than anywhere else, uh, because the language is absolutely unambiguous, that the work of salvation was done, was finished at the cross, not just started. His mission was not to enlighten us, it was to save us, to redeem us, rescue us, liberate us. And toward the end of what we read last week was in chapter 2, Beginning in verse uh, 13. This wasn't the last thing we read, but it was toward the end there. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Then he goes on to chastise them for trying to add to the work of the cross by adopting uh, strict dietary laws, avoiding certain food and drink by being legalistic about Sabbaths and holidays and new moons, uh, the calendar in general, legalism in general. And he wraps up chapter 2 with a warning that says, telling them the harsh treatment of the body and strict adherence to these externals does nothing, has no value when it comes to curbing or crushing or changing the desires of the flesh. You can, that's, that's all review. Now he's about to address this other strand of Gnosticism, which, uh, which basically said, and we talked about this in the introduction, that since the body... And by extension, the whole physical world is really evil. 
or maybe even illusory. It doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. It's really impossible to sin. Sexual sin isn't sin because it's a purely physical act, uh, and the body isn't even real. It's only the spirit that Jesus came to save and redeem. Uh, and, of course, it's nonsense, and, and it opened up, you know, here on one hand, Gnosticism is leading them to this very strict lifestyle, and on the other hand, it's a, a different strand of it is leading to this very sensuous lifestyle. So we begin chapter 3 in verse 1. If you, sorry, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now this is a beautiful passage. In fact, everything we're going to read today uh, is kind of bookended by two really beautiful, powerful passages. And this, this first one, if I could sum up the four verses we just read, it would be this. Be eternity-minded. Be eternity-minded. If you have been raised with him, then he's the one you need to be focused on. It doesn't mean you can't uh, read a book. It doesn't mean you can't have a conversation. It means cultivate an awareness of the reality of Christ in you. You know, this is, uh, this is a, a kind of an elementary principle, but it's something that I think we will be working on our entire life on this earth, which is this balancing sin consciousness with God consciousness. If we become sin consciousness, that's what leads to legalism. I've got to stop doing this. I've got to make myself holy. Rather, if we cultivate an awareness of the presence of God, we are less inclined to sin. Uh, it's, 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 if you could picture Jesus riding in the car with you, if you could picture him having dinner with you, sitting next to you on the couch when you're watching TV, is that going to have any effect on the things you talk about, on your language, on the entertainment choices you make? I bet it is. So uh, this is the kind of, uh, this is what Paul is saying. You fix, your, fix your mind on things above. And he's not just talking about how Christ and how an awareness of the presence of Christ is going to change your behavior. He's talking about, let's remember what this is ultimately all about. We are going to be with him in glory. That's the, that's the end game. Everything here, everything that we're doing here ultimately is to do like what Pastor Mike just said. Let's bring as many people with us as we can. Can we enjoy this life? Does God take pleasure in seeing us enjoy his blessings and his creation? Yes, but our lives aren't to be focused on pleasure. There has to be an aim in what we're doing. And that aim is to live the gospel and preach the gospel and see people saved. So, think on these things. Set your mind on things above. We'll kind of come back around this. So, I'm going to move on. And beginning in verse 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. He's not talking about church members. He's talking about the members of your body and their desires. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. 
This is one of those passages that used to make me worry. Scratch my head, whatever. It, because it, it kind of can sound like salvation by works. You know, and I ask myself, have I, uh, do I have evil desires ever? Uh, do I have, is there uncleanness? I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of casting a pretty wide net. You know, those are, those are pretty, I'm not saying they're vague terms, but they're not super specific. Have I had a desire or an evil thought or an evil passion? Yeah, you have too. I guarantee it. And does that mean the wrath of God is coming on me? Because this is, this is kind of the point. This is serious stuff. God doesn't take your sin lightly. And so when I read this, it's almost like, don't do these things or the wrath of God is going to fall on you. Is this salvation by works? And it's not. What he says is, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. That's not you and it's not me. Who are we? We're sons of God. Children of God. I'm not a son of disobedience. I disobey or I used to. I have disobeyed since I got saved, since I became a son of God. Have you? Are you a son of disobedience? Are you a child of disobedience? Are you a child of the devil? You're not. You're a child of God. What Paul is saying is, these things are serious. And it is, it's the outworking of these sinful desires and these sinful acts that ultimately is going to bring the wrath of God. He is going, the wrath of God is going to be poured out on unrepentant flesh. He is going to judge the sin of mankind. Except you and I, we're done with that. Why? Your sin has been judged. My sin has been judged. Wait, where? I don't remember suffering the judgment. You didn't. Your sin was put on Jesus Christ and the judgment fell on him. That's what the cross is all about. Remember that. That is the center of the gospel. You were just, we all came out of the same sinful, all of mankind, right? We're all sinners. And Jesus went to the cross bearing the sin of mankind. The judgment that was poured out on him was judgment that, was, that we had coming to us. It was the, the handwriting uh, that, that we just read has been canceled. It was canceled at the cross, Okay. That judgment has, is be, we don't look forward to that. That's not something that is in our future. The wrath of God is not our portion. What he's saying is, since it cost Jesus Christ what it cost him, since it cost God the Father, his son, it was a, it was a terrible price. When we read before, the handwriting of the debt has been canceled. God didn't just take that and, oh, we'll just erase this. He didn't. He paid it. It's canceled as far as we're concerned, but God didn't just poof, make it go away. He's a God of justice, and so the price had to be paid. Only Jesus paid it, not you and me. And he's saying since Jesus paid that, since we've been raised with him, don't act like sinful humanity anymore. You need to act differently. Not to earn the salvation, you've already got it. It's a gift. How seriously can you think you're taking it, though, if you're not going to let it change you? And we're going to get to some specifics here. In uh, verse 8, But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, 
who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. There's a lot of uh, putting off and putting on here. And that's what I want to spend a few minutes talking about. Here's a list of behaviors that you are to put off. Stop thinking this way. Stop doing these things. Stop speaking this way. Here are some things to put on. Put on the new man. I was reading this this morning. I was uh, going over the, the, the texts that I would be reading uh, with the sermon. And the phrase came into my mind, are you putting me on? Are you putting me on? And this might be a reaction that you get. Have you ever met somebody? Sorry, have you ever known somebody that maybe you haven't seen in five years, ten years, and they've become a Christian since you met them? And you can't believe the change? Or have you known somebody who got so thoroughly converted that they're a different person from the person you knew a week ago? And they're speaking so differently and acting so differently and their desires have so, so shifted that you wonder, what has happened? Has anybody ever thought that about you? You start talking about this stuff and they say, well, are you putting me on? No, I'm not putting you on. I've put on the new man. Christ is making a difference in my life. Now, here's where I guess the rubber meets the road as far as this message goes. Everybody's experience, be very careful you're hearing what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. Everybody's salvation experience uh, is different. There's a wide variety of experiences that people have at the moment they commit their lives to Christ. And all, but keep in mind, they didn't get saved in different ways. That's what I make, make sure you understand. If you, everybody who got saved got saved by putting their trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, confessing him as Lord, right? But when that happens, some people see a bright light. Some people just experience a flood of peace. Some people have said uh, that they immediately lost certain desires. Uh, I, I knew a guy, just a real humble guy, uh, one of the, and a giant in the faith, and, and has, has, has had a great impact on my life, and he was sharing that, uh, and it was very difficult for me to leave, knowing him, I've only known him as a Christian, but he said one of the biggest things he had trouble with was cussing, that he had a really foul mouth, and I, I couldn't even imagine uh, the harshest thing I ever heard him say was, that really makes me mad. And he said it just like that. That was about as passionate and as close to sin as I ever saw this guy get, all right? So, so he told me he used to have a really bad mouth. He said this was one of the things that really blew him away. When he really came to Christ once, he was working, and, 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 and this was just shortly after he, he made a confession of faith, and he hit his thumb with a hammer and said, ow, and stuck it in his mouth. And he says, at that moment, he realized, wow, God has really made a change in me because I didn't cuss when I hit my thumb with the hammer. This, this just, it's a, it was just a thorough, almost instantaneous change. And that is great when it happens like that. Paul is saying, is not saying it's not going to happen like that. What he is saying is you and I have a responsibility to identify certain ways of thinking, certain ways, certain ways of speaking, certain ways of behaving, and eliminate those things. 
Don't wait for God to take them away. Put them off. And to identify, which you'll see, uh, it, it kind of dovetails with the fruit of the Spirit in, in, in Galatians, right? Love, joy, uh, love, joy peace, patience, kindness, uh, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Put these things on. Now, they are in you. We know that because the Holy Spirit is in us. He brings those things. But Paul's saying to put them on as well. Put on the new man. All of this to say, when you decide to act a certain way because you are called to represent, you are not faking it. You are not being a hypocrite. You are being obedient. All right? This shouldn't be a difficult concept, but we live in an age, oh, man, that's right, there was an article that just, Mom, you might be the one who sent it to me. Somebody linked me this great article about how we live in an age where the, the holy terms now are authenticity. I think that might be the, the main, uh, be authentic. And to some people, being authentic is more important than being obedient. Well, this is just the way I am. I'm just a broken person, and therefore I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pretend I don't, Talk like this. I'm not going to pretend I don't like these things. I'm just going to be open and honest. Fine. Be open and honest, but change. Put on the new man. Anybody who spent any time in a military or paramilitary organization, uh, police department, fire department, anything like that, and you know there's a certain way you address your superiors, and, it is a way, and it's a way of speaking that is filled with respect. I don't address a person who is one rank ahead of me as anything other than sir or ma'am. Has nothing to do with what I think of them as an officer or as an individual. I might think that they stink. I might think that they're... I, and believe me, uh, even in my limited experience, I ran across several incompetent superior officers. Or senior officers, I'll say. I think I was the superior officer, but they were senior to me. So... And I might not have had a great deal of respect for them, but that, that, did ne- that never gave me permission to ignore protocol. That, dear captain, I'm a lieutenant, you're sir. And this is the way I will address you. That's not pretending. That's not being hypocritical. It's simply obeying the rules. And this is what Paul is saying here. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Since your freedom your salvation, your forgiveness has been purchased at such a great price. Stop doing the things you've been forgiven of. And start doing the things that you have been gifted to do. Whether you feel it or not, the presence of God, the power of God is in you to do what? To, uh, to put away these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, lying, Put on the new man in renewed knowledge, uh, renewed knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now, and, and let's move on. Verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. There's the things that we put on. There's what the new man looks like. Verse 14, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let's stop there for just a second. Do you see how, uh, 
Back there, for instance, in, in uh, 3.2. Set your mind on things above, not on things of, on earth. You see how that dovetails with Philippians 4.8. Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good, pure, of good report. Meditate on these things. You see how consistent Paul is being in these letters. And, uh, and this part here, putting on the new man. Back in Philippians 2.12 where it says, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Same thing. Exact same concept. And then when it gets down to verse 11, which we kind of skipped over, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, city, and slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. This is not just a throwaway phrase. He's reminding them again that being in Christ and Christ in us is the only thing that matters. Remember, this is still a hard thing for us to really relate to, but in the mind of many of the early Christians, they had come out of a world where there were two, uh, yes, there were national distinctions, there were different governments, but in the mind of the Jew, there were only two major divisions of humanity, the Jew and the Gentile. Jews and everybody else. And so now, even though they are Christians, they think, well, there are Christian Jews, uh, sorry, there, there are Jewish Christians and there are Gentile Christians. And Paul's saying, no, there are only two divisions of mankind, but those divisions now are Christians and everybody else. Christians and non-Christians. And within Christianity, these other distinctions mean nothing. Whether you're Greek, Jewish, barbarian, slave, free, male, female, doesn't matter. You are all in Christ. There was a... Uh, I attended a church in Columbus, Indiana for the better part of a year. And it was a... Uh, I would call it a very white-collar church because... It was uh, a good number, a majority probably, of the people who came to that church were higher-ranking, um, you know, some, some uh, uh, higher-ranking officers and engineers of, uh, from Cummins Engine, uh, Columbus, Indiana. Cummins is kind of the, the engine of that town. It's the bread and butter of that town. Uh, but you also had a sprinkling of uh, blue-collar workers who also worked for the company attend that church. And this was an alliance church, probably 150 people. And it was a good church, Bible-believing church, worshiping church. Wasn't what I would necessarily call full gospel. It was on paper, but not in practice. Anyway, not here to bash it in any way. But one of the elders was a high-ranking, uh, I don't know, I remember what his job title was, but he was a high-ranking white-collar guy from, from the corporate office building. And he was sharing one day, I think before communion, how his child, his young child asked, why do you always ignore so-and-so when you see him at church? Why don't you ever call him brother so-and-so like you call so-and-so brother so-and-so? Because this was a blue-collar worker. And this guy was sharing this. He goes, it never occurred to me how terrible a thing this is. You know, our jobs, he works down here on the line, he does this. So we kind of walk, we're in two different worlds. He has, to, uh, he has to respect my status. I have a certain uh, degree of influence over his job. He says, but when we come here, none of that means anything, or none of that should mean anything, and I was allowing it to. It really shook him to have his kid ask him that. But that's exactly what the application here is all about. Uh, there was another guy. This, this is kind of getting off the track, but I'll tell another story. There was a, uh, a guy I worked with 
at, uh, I was working at the time at the Walmart Distribution Center in Seymour, Indiana. And this was hard, very physical, very dirty work. Uh, but I loved it. It was just what the doctor ordered after, after my time at Canaan Land, kind of time to decompress. But there was this guy I was working with, got to be good friends with, and we would, sh- uh, we, I would, we would take turns driving because we both lived in Columbus. And it was about a 45-minute drive to work. Got to know him pretty well. And he was a really quiet guy. And just something about his appearance and his mannerisms uh, made it hard for me to, I mean, just, he, he was just kind of, he just seems very, he seemed very self-conscious, and he, he didn't speak loud. It, tur- it turned out, after a while, he just flat out told me the reason he was so quiet is he kept his mouth shut like that because he was embarrassed about his teeth. He couldn't afford to get his teeth fixed. So he came across almost as kind of, uh, I don't know, I just sort of made this uh, illogical leap that he wasn't very intelligent. But as I got to know him, I found out he was a very smart guy and a sweet guy and a blast to be around. But life had really kicked him around, and one of the the biggest blows to him was uh, his wife had left him. And he spent every extra dollar he had fighting these custody battles. And I had met her once or twice, and it was one of these deals where I couldn't say it authoritatively, but one of those deals where, boy, the better parent was this guy. This this girl was into some things, and it it was a bad scene. But she was working hard to make life miserable for her, uh, for her ex, and this guy was bearing the brunt of it. And uh, he had just barely gotten through this first round of divorce negotiations with, with any custody at all. And he was telling me the story about how her lawyer was really pushing her to get full custody and deny him his rights. And, uh, and when she gave just a little bit, he looked at her and said, you're a blank fool. So I tell you this story, and I tell you about how this guy, Dave was his name, and I got close, and I invited him to church, and he agreed to come. And so we are sitting together in church, and uh, we're just kind of, we're waiting for church to start. We're sitting there in the, pew, the pews, and, and uh, some people came and sat right in front of us, and my friend just stiffened up immediately. I said, What's the matter? He goes, he points to this guy who's sitting right in front of us and said, does he always come here? I said, yeah, that's my wife's divorce lawyer. And so during meet and greet, he turns around and says, hello, Scott. Hello. Shook hands with my friend and then turned right around and didn't say another word. Now, this is one of those deals where I don't know I, 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 knew this, I knew this guy was a lawyer. I had no idea he worked on divorces, and I certainly had no idea he was uh, the enemy of my friend here. But it's one of those things where as a Christian, it's like, all right, this is this guy's job, and I know lawyers are just, they are representing their client, and it's their job to do the best, to do the, as, as good a job for them as they can, help their client, not whoever their client is suing or anybody else. It's just strictly professional. But as a Christian, how can you do that? These, the morals and the right and wrong of the situation have to enter in. And it might cost us, right? We talk about, you know, doctors and pharmacists who uh, their, their job takes a hit because of their refusal, uh, their refusal to uh, prescribe certain medications, abortifacients and things like that, or, to, or doctors to perform or even recommend abortions. Uh, it, it can hurt their business. Uh, but you and I are going to have to make decisions like that. 
sooner or later, our faith is going to cost us. And Paul says, be ready for that. And it's all part of putting on the new man. And I got a little bit off track. I wanted to tell you those stories. Let's, let's uh, kind of wrap this up here because I want to get to this, this passage more than anything else. Uh, back in Colossians chapter 3, beginning, uh, we just read in verse, uh, let's read through, how far did we get here? Uh, 13, huh? 17? Did we read through 17? 15. Let's read, let's read 15 again. Uh, no, we went through 14. 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is so, so good. When he tells, right there in verse 14, but above all these things, put on love which is the bond of perfection. Let's start there because we've talked about this before. But you know, love. So there's a number of words for love, but let's just say love now without going into a teaching on storge and phileo and agape and uh, everything else. There, there's at least four. I can think of five. But anyway, love. What is love? What is love? Five feet of heaven and a ponytail. No, that's not what love is. Love, the bond of perfection. Love, remember this, love as Jesus commanded it. Remember this, a new commandment I give unto you. Let's go back for just a second. They had asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Maybe thinking of the Ten Commandments. And he says, the greatest commandment uh, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then in John chapter 13, he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also love one another. Now, who's he saying this to? He's saying this to his disciples. So he'd be saying that to you and me. We cannot fulfill that commandment. This is Jesus. This is Jesus a week before the cross, or during the week before he goes to the cross, saying this, I'm giving you a new commandment. We've been together three years. You've been working with me. We've been doing life together. And now, as I get ready to go to the cross, I'm giving you this. This is now how you li- the, what, the command you live your life by. You love one another. One another, just as I have loved you. This is a huge deal. And we cannot obey that commandment Without this. Obedience to, the, to Jesus' commandment, his new commandment, is only possible in Christian community. The mountaintop, I just want to be alone with God in the woods. I don't need other people. Yes, you do. If you're going to be obedient to Christ, you absolutely need other people. You can't love them when you're isolated in the woods somewhere. You can miss them. But love isn't this feeling. Well, I, just, I still feel just as warmly for all those people that I'm not seeing week in and week out. That's not what it's about either. The love that held Jesus on the cross was not just warm, fuzzy feelings. Love is action. Love will dictate how we speak to people, how we give how we spend our time, it, it dictates everything. It needs to. 
And this is what he's saying. The bond of, uh, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. If you want to be perfect, and this is what we're aiming for, right? If we want to be holy, if we want to be like God, the thing that we measure everything by or, or examine everything through is the lens of love. How would I act if I loved this person? And it helps us to think about that because we still, we still have a strong attachment to the word love being linked to our feelings. Well, I might not feel a certain way about you, but how would I treat you if I did? If I felt about you as I felt about my favorite person in the world, how would I treat you? This is what I ought to be aiming for. Love, obedience to Christ's commandments is only possible in community. Remember, he's not talking about loving your neighbor here. He's talking about loving the church, the body of Christ. Are we still supposed to love our neighbor? Yes. Okay. Now, the other thing here is when he says in uh, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, back up to 15, with the peace of God. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body and be thankful. Now, there's another number of ways to look at peace. I'm only going to say this quickly because I've made a big deal out of, out of this before. Whenever I see the word peace, I at least stop and look at it this way. It's not just uh, serenity. It's not just being calm. Peace is also a term we use to... Uh, to indicate uh, an end to the hostilities. Not peace as opposed to panic, but peace as opposed to war. The peace we have with God reminds us that we were once enemies of God. Whether we meant to be or not, that's what our sin made us. And now we have peace with God that's been purchased Same way our forgiveness is purchased. Purchased with the blood of his son at the cross. And then in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is how we are going to be the best for one another. If I've been commanded to love you, and I have by Jesus, and and then write just a few verses ahead in this letter, put put on love, which is the bond of perfection, above all, You know, he gives all these specifics and basically says, as long as you are living in love, these things will automatically, this is how you're going to speak. If you can't, if you're, if I'm thinking, I love you and so I'm going to speak to you like I love you, I don't have to specifically remind myself not to let filthy communication come out of my mouth when I'm speaking to you because that's not love, right? So let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Love one another. If I'm going to be the best for you, If I love you, that means I am really sincerely interested in your life being the best it can be. And I mean that in spiritual terms. I want you to be as pleasing to God as you can possibly be. Because that's good for you. And ultimately, it's good for me too. How can I do that best? If I love you and want to see you a success, I want to see you walking in favor with God, what's the best thing I can do? The best thing I can do is to allow the word of God to dwell richly in me. Because that means when I advise you, when I encourage you, and when I correct you, I'm doing it based on God's word. If the word of God is not dwelling richly within me, I might want to encourage you. And you come up and I say, what's wrong, tiger? And you say, well, I tried to do something and I couldn't do it. I feel like a failure. And now I want to encourage you, but I don't have the word in me. So I got to come up with something like, uh, just what makes that little old ant think he can move a rubber tree plant? Remember that one? 
because he's got high hopes. All right, thank you. And that might make you feel better, but is that, gonna, is that really what you need? What if I could point to a, a verse in the Bible that says, uh, w- that would allow me to say, do you feel this thing you tried, this project you attempted, do you feel that's something God put on your heart? And if they say, yeah, I do. I, I came to this, I pursued this in prayer, and that's when I got really excited about it. Okay, so you failed this time, but you know what? I believe the Word of God tells us that if he has called me to do something, he's also equipped me to do something. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the Word of God. If I can encourage you, if you're feeling guilty, oh, I just thought of something I did, I just really hurt somebody, and I can say, oh, come on, they'll get over it. Or I could say, look, Bible says... That if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's leave it under the blood and go on. Let's go find that person maybe you offended and let's apologize to them and let's clear the air. But you receive your forgiveness from God. See, let the word of Christ dwell richly so that the songs I sing to you to cheer you up are God songs. When it's... It says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It doesn't necessarily mean, oh, well, we see, that means I have to, I have to be, uh, come up to you and sing in tongues and then sing the interpretation. Can it happen that way? Yeah. But we should be full of, and that's why I love you, know, praise and worship songs that have scriptures in them or scriptural principles in them. Those are great things to have going because they fill you up with those concepts, with that, with that truth that you can then share with one another. Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here, by the way, because I'm getting ready to wrap this up. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This brings us back to where we started in this chapter, which is about being eternity-minded. Set your mind on things above. It doesn't mean that every single thing, it's like, well, I'm buttering my toast. How do I do that to the glory of God? Okay? It simply means that throughout your day, what are we doing? cultivating an awareness. Is there anything wrong? Is there anything that's crazy or hyper-spiritual about while you're buttering your toast saying, thank you, Lord, for my daily bread? Thank you. For this, is, this is why I think it's, it's an important thing. We don't get legalistic or, or uh, ritualistic about it. But I think it's an important thing to say grace, to pray over your meals, every meal, because it keeps us, it reminds us to be thankful it's a good idea anyway because, you know, God says our food is sanctified by the giving of thanks. And he'll take sickness from our midst, okay? And, uh, man, you're eating in a restaurant especially. You don't know who has touched your food or spit in it or whatever. I say a prayer over it and I just believe it's blessed and it's sanctified. And uh, God takes sickness from my midst. Helps not to make the waiter mad too, but, you know, play every angle. No, but be thankful. And, and it's, it's not a matter of, well... I'm, I'm, I'm going to pray in the restaurant because I want to, I want to give a good... Uh, it's a, but it is a good witness. We certainly shouldn't be ashamed to pray in public. You know? One of these days it's going to be illegal. We need to still do it. But certainly do it while it's legal. All right? But, but seriously, if you're just making breakfast at home, thank God for it. Thank God. Take a moment. Everything you enjoy. Every convenience. Thank you, God, that we have this. Boy, that weather was nasty last night. Thank God we have a home. Thank God we have a roof over our... our I believe God wants us to increase. I believe he takes pleasure as we progress in things. But 
He's a good parent. And if we're not appreciating the things we have, what does, what does it do to our character if he just keeps piling on more? We need to be genuinely grateful, right? And this is part of that love walk, holding on to these things with a loose hand. I can be very grateful for something I have, and sometimes I get so wrapped up in my own gratitude that I forget that somebody else needs it. And I can plant a seed by sowing it into their lives. Why do I do that? Because I want to see the increase in my life? No, because I love them. It's putting on love. That's what motivates me to do these things. God will take care of me. He'll take care of you. All right? And I'll wrap it up with this. Stand up. If love is the bond of perfection, and that's what's going to make it easy for us to determine the right thing to say and the right thing to do, and that love... This is written in the church. Yes, we're to love God. Yes, we're to love our neighbors. But love one another. Love the church. Love the body of Christ. Again, you can't do it in isolation. And you can't do it with just a feeling. You can't love just by being nice. How did Jesus love us? He gave everything. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.